Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, welcome back to In The Pink with me, Natalie Pinkham, and Bose, helping you stay connected. Now that lockdown is over for life because let's face it it is a crazy world out there we don't know what's around the corner and the art of conversation couldn't be more important in terms of what it is to be human so I've certainly loved chatting to some great guests throughout this series and I've really enjoyed getting your feedback on who you've enjoyed listening to and who else you would like to hear from so please keep that up keep messaging me on Instagram and someone that I've always enjoyed talking to in recent days, weeks, months and years is my Sky F1 colleague Karun Chandok and he has kindly agreed to be a guest on this podcast. Now Karun's knowledge of Formula One is encyclopedic. He has got an astonishing grasp on the history of the sport but also the future because not only was he a driver but he is now a driver manager with a keen eye on some of the young talent coming through. He is very passionate about increasing diversity in the sport and he's got some great ideas on how we can do that and some interesting insight in terms of his own experience being one of only two Indian drivers to have ever competed in Formula One. So here he is, Mr Karun Chandok, here on In The Pink. I hope you enjoy. Well, Karun, it's always a bit of a strange one when I interview one of my friends um, I actually quite like it because I feel that um, you might tell me things I didn't already know about you. You know, it's possible. Um, but I well, want to, yeah, go on. Well, we're about to find out, I guess. <laughs> we are about to find out. You're right. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember when we first met. It would have been when we were both at the BBC. Yep. And uh, no, hang on. No, no, what no, was no. your fir- what was race. your first race in, with Five Live? What was your first race? Yeah, you were definitely still racing. So I was. Um, that would have been twenty eleven, Australia twenty eleven. Yeah, I think uh, we would have met there because I was a reserve driver at Lotus. At Lotus, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I ended up doing some commentary. That was my first year doing some commentary for Five Live because I filled in. Uh, for Anthony, I filled in. I did, I think, seven or eight races when Anne couldn't make it with you and with you and Crofty. So yeah, that oh, must have been it. Lovely stuff. Uh, good memories. Um, I can't believe how long ago that was as well. My God, like nine, ten years ago. Crazy stuff. Just think <laughs> about how many sausage rolls Crofty's eaten in that time. <laughs> I don't, I don't hazard a guess, but we will by the end of this. In fact, I'd like any listeners. Just to hazard a guess, just send me any predictions on that and then I'll, we'll try and work it out. Um, I want you to cast your mind back even further, though, to your childhood. And it occurs to me that motor racing is quite an unusual thing for an Indian kid to be into because you have this religion of cricket in India. Why did that not draw you in? Oh, it, it absolutely, absolutely drew me in. I play cricket um, like all the other kids in school. You know, we played on the street outside our house. Um, we played with our neighbours. That's, that's what you did every afternoon after school. You play cricket. But for me, I was in a, a very unique um, position because my family were into motorsport. My dad used to race and rally at the time. Um, my grandfather before that, since the late 50s, I guess. And 
Um, my grandmother did some races, in fact, in the early 70s as well. And uh, she, I think she, her best story is how she finished third in one of the races, despite the fact that her door hinge um, gave way. So she had to hold the door with one hand and still finish third, which was a, a hell of a result. Um, so, yeah, I, I grew up in that motorsport environment. You know, we constantly had motorsport people uh, in my house. Then my dad, uh, you know, started taking on responsibility of running teams uh, as well as driving. So I would spend all my sort of spare time and weekends in the workshop with him and, and with the mechanics and just learning about cars and mucking about with cars and, and you know, on the odd occasions and have a bit of a drive and, and go from there, really. So where did it all start for the Chandocks? Where did this interest in... Well, we, we, our family business was to do with cars and, and, you know, my, uh, my great grandfather, uh, had a, a business with, with his family doing, um, motor parts, basically we were trading motor parts. And then we, I think my granddad started a garage and, um, you know, so alongside the, the trade of sourcing the parts, we were then fitted to cars, I guess. Uh, so I guess I presume that's where it started, but then my grandfather was the one who got into motorsport he got into he just liked driving fast and then he ended up founding the the federation in india which uh, still exists today um and he along with two of his mates basically went and um formed a trust and went to the bank borrowed the money through the trust and built india's first racetrack in um in the mid 80s and uh, jackie stewart came to India in 87 and laid the foundation stone um, to inaugurate the, the construction site and, and had dinner at my grandparents' house, actually, which is pretty cool. I, I had to remind Jackie about that uh, only a couple of years ago. And, and he's an extraordinary man. I mean, you, you know him. His memory is still so good. He, he remembers going and having dinner at my grandparents' dining room in, uh, in 1987, which is quite amazing. Wow. And I guess it wasn't a given that you'd be any good. So when it dawns on your family that you actually had some real talent, uh, I bet they were seriously pumped about that. Well, it was a funny one because growing up in that environment in India, it was almost a given. You know, they, they, the people around the motorsport community just assumed I would be taking part as a driver one day whether it was racing or rallying because I was always around the racetrack my brother on the other hand uh, had no interest in the sport and, and this is the interesting thing it's not like my parents pushed me towards it they let us choose whatever we wanted he had no interest he actually became a professional cricketer funnily enough and um, I but I was always interested in it and then when I turned 16, which was the age to start racing in India, um, I went to my dad and I said, right, I'm old enough now. Let's, you know, can I go, can I go take part? And, you know, can we sort something out? And he just looked at me and says, well, you're about 25 kilos too fat because I was 96 kilos at the time. And uh, so we made a deal that if I lost 25 kilos, then, uh, then I could go racing. And my, I had to make a deal with my mum that my grades in school wouldn't drop because I was still in my final year of uh, A-levels at that time, uh, or the equivalent of A-levels. Um, so yeah, and by October, I'd lost 26 kilos in 10 months and, uh, and did okay at school as well. And I really want to be able to show our listeners the before and after photos because there is but a I think it's I think it's Simon Lazenby's wallpaper now. He shows it off so much. <laughs> It is an amazing picture. I mean, honestly, I remember you showing me and I didn't believe it was you. You know, you told me it was you. I still didn't believe it was you. It, the difference is incredible. But that is that is a massive commitment and a huge dedication to, to lose that amount of weight. That's astonishing. Was it hard? But it's, it's, it's a commitment that you have to make. You know, that, to me, that was just the first step. Um, you know, being a racing driver is... Well, being any, any sports, but frankly, is a huge, huge commitment. Your whole life has to be geared around that. I think people underestimate just how much it takes over your entire psyche. Mm. With you know, I went through a 15, 18-year period where every single thing that you did, your whole day, your whole week, your whole life was structured around having the optimum amount of energy for a race weekend. You know, it... And everything is, you put so much thought into the detail. You know, I remember packing for races 
and making sure I would pack the most comfortable pair of underpants because those are the ones I needed for the races, race days in the car. You know, it's that level of detail that you, your entire life just takes over. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's a commitment on, you have to make if you, especially coming from a country like India, I think it's, you know, you have to remember if you're growing up in the UK or in, in Europe, you're only two hours away from your nearest car track or racetrack. You're, you're not far away from having the access to the sport. When I was growing up, you know, Silverstone seemed like, a, like another planet. I remember going to Brands Hatch for the first time and having goosebumps because I never dreamt as a kid watching it on TV. I, I would be standing there in the pit lane, driving around that circuit. And I think, you know, this, that feeds the motivation for people from Asia or, or from Japan or from Brazil, you know, who are so far away. I've had similar conversations with, other drivers from these parts and and Australians are the same you know you yeah. your, your drive I think Mark Webber uses the phrase you would charge through walls and he's absolutely right you know I think when you're coming from you you give up so much you leave all your friends family behind uh, I came from a city of 11 million people with all of my friends and family pretty much live in the same city and still do and I came to a town in, in the UK with 11,000 people in Brackley and uh uh, no, uh, I knew nobody, absolutely nobody there. Uh, the first people I met were the mechanics and the people who ran the team. I was in an F3. But that's the sacrifice you make. What age were you then? 18. Couldn't make wow. a cup of tea. <laughs> that hasn't changed, by the way. Don't oh, I, I'm nailing it now. I, really? I, I don't think in the, all the time I've known you, you've made me a cup of tea. Well, might not have asked <laughs> yeah, I'll have to do it at Silverstone then when we meet up next. <laughs> you know what, though? To your point, it's interesting because um, I get, and listen, I can't begin to understand the level of sacrifice and commitment that racers do make in pursuit of their, their dream. But I do get annoyed when people say, ah, you know, he hasn't got what it takes about anyone who's on the current grid. You know, if ever that people criticise those on the current grid, I, I feel like, do you have any idea how much it's taken them just to get to that point. And that is the point, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we're talking about the top 20 drivers in the world. You know, if you think about the top level of footballers, you know, there's thousands within just the UK alone, 5,000 professional footballers in the UK alone. And this is 20 of the top drivers. Now, I know money is a big part of that and people will be shouting at their, you know, radios or devices, whatever they're listening to this on and say, well, money's got to get you there. But talent plays a massive part too, doesn't it? And commitment, dedication is such a huge um, prerequisite, if you like, for this world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think, you know, there, there aren't any bad drivers in Formula One. Uh, I think, especially in recent times, I think if you go back to the, the let's say the 80s, maybe even 70s, um, possibly even early 90s, when you had pre-qualifying and you had 30, 35 cars on the grid, you know, you had some fairly shambolic operations with some pretty mediocre drivers who, who would get on the grid. That isn't the case anymore. You know, any, any driver who you've seen come through to modern Formula One has won races in Formula Three, has won races in Formula Two or GP2. And that on its own tells you that they are very good racing drivers, you know? Mm. Not all of them are Lewis Hamilton. Not all of them can be Lewis Hamilton. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't deserve their place on the grid. So just tell us about that culture shock of coming to Brackley and sort of adapting to this new life in Britain. Well, I'll never forget, I landed. It was the 1st of February, 2002. My dad and I flew over and we landed. And we'd been to the UK previously on sort of family holidays and, and to come watch races. I, I used to fly over uh, to watch Narain Karthike and race in Formula 3 and, and, and went up and stayed with him and you know, followed him around a couple of times. So I'd been over, but only in my school summer holidays. Suddenly I landed <laughs> on the 1st of February. I couldn't work out what was going on. It was dark at like 3, 30, 4 in the afternoon. It was just miserable. And it, it, you know, it can be a pretty depressing time considering my friends at home are um, you know, sending me photos of them. Well, at that time, I guess it was on email. But it's 28 degrees and they're on the beach. And, uh, and also, you know, I have to remember at that time, I'd, 
I just finished as I said, my A-levels and all of my friends are off to university and undergrad and they're all, you know, as undergrad students do, they're all out until three, four in the morning and just having a great time. And uh, meanwhile, you know, I'm having to lace up my running shoes and try and drag myself out in this cold, wet weather in England. So it, it, is, uh, it was a culture shock, but I was very lucky. You know, I think when I, the first day I showed up in Brackley, the team manager took my dad and I to the estate agent. And uh, so he took us around the town and we went and saw two or three houses. And I remember at the end of it, we went back to their office and I said to him, I said, so is this the, is this the suburb of the town? You know, where, where's the main town? And he just looked at me completely confused because he said, uh, we've done three laps of Brackley already. And it, it, it just blew my mind that that was it. That was the whole town was that one high street and some houses around it. But I grew to love it. And, you know, I ended up living there till pretty much 2015. Um, uh, so 15 years, actually, and became part of the community and had the restaurant named Dishes after me on the menu and, uh, you know, made, a, made some really good friends. Yeah, I still need to go to that restaurant. I've heard all about it. Uh, just a word on Narain Kartikeyan. What a lovely guy. Um, he was a great asset to the paddock. And actually, I remember back in 2012, uh, going to India for my honeymoon. And I happened to say to him, oh, actually, at the end, you know, at the end of the year, we're, gonna, we're taking a delayed honeymoon and we're going to go to India. And he went, oh, fantastic. And I told him briefly what I, where I was going. Anyway, I got to where I was going and suddenly I had all this like red carpet treatment. Now he must be seriously connected and I know you are as well, India. But I arrived and they knew it was our honeymoon and they had done all sorts of things because Narain had rung ahead and said, can you look after my mate from F1? I couldn't believe it. Because we were. I hope you. I hope you were nice to him on the telly after that. Oh yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. Um, but yeah, we were we were pretty skint and we couldn't really afford the honeymoon. So to get these upgrades, my, I remember my husband thinking, "Oh wow, this girl can pull some strings." <laughs> it wasn't me at all. It was Noreen. The world continues to evolve, and the new norm isn't fully clear yet. But what does remain constant is the core message from our friends at Bose: stay calm, stay centered and stay connected. Communication is key in everything we do and goes a long way to nurturing both ourselves and our relationships with others. So continue to talk about what matters to you and don't be afraid to block out unhelpful noise or indeed to embrace silence because doing both can be great. Some of the ways we work will have changed forever. Embrace that. Make those new ways work for you shape the new norm to suit you feel more do more be more with bows um okay so i feel like the big break for you was when you got the call up from red bull racing sort of back in 2007 how much of a surprise was that or how, how elated were you just cast your mind back to 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 that moment when you got the call well actually the so the end of 2000 Six. So for 2006, I'd gone back to Asia to race. I'd run out of money, basically, to race in Europe. And uh, Renault started up a new championship out in Asia. I got a deal to go out there. Um, so I, I, I raced out there and won the championship. But, but at the end of it, I had no money to come back. And I, I thought at that point, that's it. My driving days are done. I'd actually spoken to a friend of mine who um, runs a Formula 3 team in the UK about getting a job as their team manager and just working for him uh, on the race team. And I'd sort of mentally started accepting that it might have been the end of the road. Um, but I, I had met, I, I'd come to see Bernie in September of that year. And we talked about him helping me to get a GP2 deal for the following season. And anyway, the winter came, December came away, and Christmas came away, and January. And, I, you know, you're sort of sitting on the internet in India, just seeing the entire grid filling up, thinking, yeah, it's not happening. And it was quite uncharacteristic of Bernie not to call back and not to return calls and stuff because otherwise he was normally very good to us. And um, not, just to interrupt really quickly, am I right in saying that he is your godfather? No, is it's a rumor that Natalie Pinkham has spread across the paddock and about 16 people have come and asked me this saying, oh, Nat's told me this. <laughs> so 
Somewhere you woken up on the wrong side of the bread bed, dreamt this up, and then told the whole paddock. I love this rumor. I think you should. Well, you started it, so yeah, I'm sure right. you do. But I heard this years ago. From I, your it, subconscious. Listen, I hear these stories about people adopting people in later life as their godchildren. So maybe we can put a bit of pressure on Bernie to do that now. Anyway. To do it now. Yeah, that might yeah. work. Yeah, maybe. As you were. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, eventually the phone rang uh, at the end of January and Bernie called to say there's one last seat left on the grid with Durango. Um, I think I could get a deal sorted. Uh, I had some backing from my Indian sponsors. And, um, you know, he, he said, there's one last seat. And uh, at the same time, it just transpired that Red Bull were, were looking for drivers outside of Europe a little bit, I think. Uh, Danny Baha was actually uh, the person I spoke to at Red Bull at the time. And, um, you know, he, he agreed to, so I didn't get the full Red Bull backing from him, but he, he agreed to basically do the top up of the budget between what my Indian sponsors had and what the team needed. Um, and, and somehow that deal all got put together totally last minute. And I jumped on a plane and went to, to Rickard. So, yeah, with, without Red Bull. And then the following year, you know, they, they, they backed me again. And uh, actually, the end of 07, I got my first F1 test. And I did their first simulation days um, when they were first building their simulator stuff. So it, it was a massive break. Um, you know, without, without Red Bull, I'd be done. I would have been, you know, team manager of a Formula 3 team. And a very good job you would have done of it too. But I'm glad, I'm glad that they intervened when they did. Um, tell us about the, the workings of Red Bull, because we see so many drivers come through the system and they always talk about it being ruthless and Helmut Marko being this taskmaster and all the rest of it. What was it like on the inside? If I'm perfectly honest, I didn't do a good enough job of... Um, really developing that relationship with Helmut that I think other drivers did. I mean, I, I I remember being on, and I won't mention names, but I remember being on flights back from races with other Red Bull drivers who was a, I was racing with in GP2. And we'd all be on that same EasyJet flight coming back into Luton. And I'd hear them across the aisle on the phone to Helmut after every race. And basically all they did was just complain nonstop about the team they were racing with and telling Helmet, how the team was this, the team was this, the team was this, but I still managed to finish whatever, eighth or something. Uh, whereas I was always the opposite. You know, I, I, I ingrained myself with the team that I was racing with, whether it was Durango or iSport or whoever. And, um, and my approach to life, in not just driving, but in anything I do, has always been to, to look at myself first and my errors and the, the problems that I could have overcome or I could have done better. And I did that as well in my conversation with Helmut. I was, I was maybe in hindsight too quick to blame myself. And he just took it as, well, you're just the one making all the, all the screw ups. Um, and there are a couple of decisions in terms of choosing teams and stuff that, um, you know, he wanted me to do, but my gut told me to go elsewhere. And, and, and in the end, I think while I think my decisions may have been correct politically, it, it, didn't help me with helmet in the long run. Um, and, you know, th those are lessons, life lessons you can only learn with age, right? You, you know, I think I, I wasn't, I, I mean, there's a lot of, um, lot to be said about how you network yourself with key people in, in the paddock, in the sport, in mm -hmm. life, in the world. Uh, I've never been somebody who's particularly good at that. Um, I think, honestly, I look at people like Jason Plato, even outside of F1, I look at David Coulthard, um, even in the broadcast world, you know, people like Crofty and yourself, you guys are uh, naturally warm people that you go out there, you'll talk to anybody, you put yourselves out there, you, 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 you build that network up, that comes naturally to you. Um, my natural state of, of the pleasure I get, I should say, from life is to, I'm a big geeky, I like spending time with engineers and mechanics and boffins and, you know, I would, instead of, networking with the right people in the F1 paddock, I would be spending time chatting with engineer friends of mine from other teams in the GP2 paddock about their drivers. And it's like, you know, that in itself is lovely. And I tell you what, it's, it's echoes of. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Charles Leclerc, you know, blaming himself very quickly. There is something very endearing about the way he does that when he makes a mistake. But as you say, you walk away remembering that he made the mistake, whether that was fair exactly. or not. And it's just an interesting one, isn't it? It's like, if you were, if I said to you, how was your race today? And I hadn't seen it. And you went, well, actually it was crap. And I was terrible. That's what I would take away from that. And I probably, even if, if I didn't bother to then watch the race, all I've remembered is that Karun had a terrible race. Whether you did or not, you're yeah. probably being too hard on yourself. Um, yeah. Talent, and, and, though, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I think some of it comes from, you know, my, my natural competitive instinct is first against myself. You know, I, I, yeah. I'm very hard on myself to do better. And, um, and I think that's, it, when I look at the big picture, that's actually, in some ways, that's, um, you know, that's been a downside, actually. Yeah, but then the flip side of that, and again, I won't name names, but there is one current driver who I know some people feel doesn't own the moment. And when he makes mistakes, he doesn't actually put his hand up. And that in itself can backfire on you because you're like, well, look, we all make mistakes. And actually people would have a lot more respect for you if you, if you stood there and said, you know, my bad, I've got to totally own this moment and move on from it. So I don't, think, I don't think there's a straightforward answer. But no, I, but I, I, think, I think there's something to be said about who you're talking to. Um, mm. You know, I think, I think it's important to own the mistakes and stuff like that with, with, you know, your core team of engineers and people like that. But when it comes to the key decision makers in terms of your career progression, then it's important to balance that off with selling yourself. Yeah. And I think that's where I didn't do a good enough job. Um, and I, I know, you know, other drivers were certainly better at it than me. Mm, that's interesting. And then this transition that you've made, you know, seemingly seamless to broadcasting. That's an interesting one. Did you expect to be as good as you are? I'm putting you into a corner here. You've got to now admit you're good. But did you expect it to come as easily as it does to you to be able to communicate that? Because you've kind of touched on the fact that you're perhaps a bit shy, you're a bit geeky, but somehow you do just talk so well to the viewers and you get you basically take very difficult points and simplify them. And that in itself is a huge skill. Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for that. But I think, yeah, I, I think the key point is I love motor racing. I, I love Formula One. It's been, it's been the one love of my life ever since I was two, three years old. And I love talking about it to the point it bores my colleagues to death. Um, you know, I think, it, and one of the benefits for me was I started out initially working in Asia, where the level of knowledge of the viewers wasn't as high as it is in Europe. 
And, you know, my first broadcast I did was the 2004 Chinese Grand Prix, so a while ago. And I was only 20 years old at the time, and I was doing the, you know, main co-coms for, for, for the Grand Prix. And what I quickly realized was there was a lot of things that I was talking about that actually people even within the gallery who were working on the production didn't understand. And it took a couple of races for me to click, okay, hang on. Well, actually, my job is to take these things, which in my head seem really simple, but to simplify it even more to mm -hmm. make sure that my mom and my grandmother at home understand. And I would often do that. I would often call my mom after a race and say, did you understand what I was saying there? And, um, you know, you, you, you know my mother. She's uh, not, not one for diplomacy. She very quickly say, well, that was useless. You know, what is the point of saying that? I can't understand. And uh, she was right, of course. And, um, you know, she, I still get messages from her saying, be more interesting in the middle of like a free practice session and stuff. So, <laughs> um, but, you know, we're, we're all... Anyone, anyone who doesn't know about Kareen's mom, she is amazing. What she does is she sends tweets in capital letters and... Uh, I love it because it's emphasizing her point. And you just imagine her shouting the point down the phone, which is what she clearly does to you as her son. Well, I get them as WhatsApp messages. Yeah, just say, you know, you're very boring today. Say something funny <laughs> and stuff like that, which, you know, it, we're all about constructive criticism in the Chandok household, that's for sure. So, um, I love it. And, and I think that was it because my background came from starting a work in Asia, then that came natural to me, you know, my, my thinking automatically switched into, right, how can I, because we, we have a tremendously complex, complicated sport. It's, mm. uh, there's so many nuances, there are so many layers of, of technicalities, which frankly, people who tune in, let's say every two or three races, which is what the casual fans do, they're not going to get it. So it's, it's really important for us to, and that's not a reflection on their intelligence or their, their you know, level of understanding of the sport, it is just to do with the frequency of how much someone like myself or you are talking about the sport and are involved versus mm -hmm. they are in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, this is it's entertainment so to them. Because we're so often in this bubble that we think that all that matters is the, the, the sport and the various levels. And then I'll come home and, you know, someone might stop me and say, oh, who won the race yesterday? I go, oh, Lewis. They go, oh, thanks very much. And that's all they want to know. And you go, well, do, yeah. you, do you want to know about the tyre strategy? <laughs> you know, yeah. whatever else that we've absorbed ourselves in that weekend. And I think you to probably a greater degree than anyone. But you do just have this encyclopedic knowledge of the history of the sport, not just the current modern day stuff, but everything that's gone before. Like, where does that passion come from? Well, as I said, you know, F1 has it's been something that I've truly loved. And I think we're very lucky in our sport that we have such a rich history with some amazing characters, uh, amazing stories, um, and, you know, amazing technology. The evolution of the car and the race car has been fantastic to see. And I, I love reading about it. And I love, um, you know, researching about it and, and talking to people from different eras and learning about the sport because I think for, for us to understand where we are as a sport and where we're going as a sport we need to know where we come from as well and you know you'll suddenly find that there are a lot of similarities between what's happening today versus what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago that you know things go in a cycle uh, for example manufacturers come and go and, and the sport changes from you know, being a completely manufacturer dominated sport to being completely about independent teams and independent engines and, you know, all those sort of things come and go and, and same with drivers, you know, there's, there's so many things that you can learn about drivers from the past and the lives they led. You know, you, there's, there's um, some, some brilliant characters in our sport uh, who sadly, I think a lot of people in the modern Formula One paddock don't know anything about, you know, mm -hmm. how many people know about Jim Clark, for example, when you walk around the paddock, how many people would know this was a guy who in one, you know, we're all waxing lyrical about Fernando going off to do the Indy 500 and trying to win the triple crown. 
I mean, Jim Clark won the Indy 500 in the same year he won the Formula One World Championship. It's extraordinary. And that's something that I, I, and I love reading about that and seeing how, learning about how that unfolded. Mm, absolutely. Now you went from Sky Sports to Channel 4 and then came back to Sky Sports. Um, what do you kind of make of the evolution, not just with the sport, but with the broadcasting of it in that brief time? So you've talked about the history of the sport, but what have you sort of enjoyed and learned on this sort of relatively short journey that you've done so far as a broadcaster? Well, I think that it, it, it's about knowing your audience. And this is what I've learned. Um, you know, I've worked now with five major broadcasters, uh, as you mentioned, with Sky and Channel 4. I work with BN in the Middle East. Um, and every channel has a totally different audience. You know, the people who are paying their subscription fee to subscribe to Sky, they are your hardcore enthusiasts. They want to know about the latest front wing update. The, bro the, the viewers in Asia on Fox or the viewers in the Middle East, or frankly, the casual fan who watches Channel 4 doesn't necessarily care about the flick up on the barge board that, you know, is sending Ted Kravitz into a 20,000 RPM spin of excitement. Um, that's something for the for the fan at Sky, and yeah. I think that that's that's the one big takeaway. I, you know, from having worked with all these different broadcasters, that I'd say is I've learned it's all about knowing your audience and and trying to understand what that audience wants. And of course, that's a that's a complete generalization, right? There are you know there are geeky fans on Channel Four, and, and there are casual fans on Sky. Of course, there are, but you, you gotta you gotta sort of look to the majority for that. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think it's quite a difficult line for us to tread sometimes because you don't want to become so technical that you alienate anyone that's perhaps, you know, peering over the, their partner's shoulder or their parent's shoulder wanting to get into this sport, who, who maybe they're the enthusiast. You want to put stuff into layman's terms sufficiently to draw new fans in. Because one thing I have a real issue with is the old fans who somehow look down their nose at new ones. And I feel like saying, hang on a minute, this is a beautiful sport and we want to open it up all the more and we want to shake off the shackles of exclusivity and lack of access. And we want to say, come in and everyone enjoy the party. But there's definitely an element of sort of snobbery, if you like, about the new fans coming in. So I think it's tricky, but we've got to try and cater for both, haven't we? Well, of course we do. But I, I think, you know, things like the Netflix documentary have been really interesting for that. Yeah, because, you know, I've got two or three people who live on my street who watched that and then thought, oh, we haven't watched F1 in years. I'll tell you what, we're going to get back into it. And they subscribed to Sky and got into it. But then when they tune into the first race, they suddenly realize that we, we don't get given the access that perhaps the documentary makers were given. And therefore they almost come away slightly surprised with how little we're able to show of the stories behind the scenes. Mm. Now, I think the, the biggest problem is that, and, and we're not going to fix it because that's the way the world has gone, but the teams and the, the team's communication departments and the, the team management, they're all so protective of what the drivers and the team members say that everything gets filtered. You know, we... I, I look back to, you know, watching Senna and Mansell and Prost in the early 90s and late 80s. And, you know, Senna would have won a race and he'll basically sit there complaining about this, that and the other. And, and essentially saying the team hasn't been good enough and all the rest. And, and today he would be ripped to shreds by, you know, the team management and, and the comms people and the sponsors and all the rest of it. But it's just you know, there's a real, um, there's a real clampdown, isn't there, on, on the driver's freedom of mm -hmm. speech, really, in some ways. Um, and I think that's a bit of a shame, you know, when we, as we said, when I saw the Netflix documentary, or frankly, during lockdown, you saw them doing the virtual racing and stuff, and their inner personalities start to come out. <clears throat> and we know from, from, shall we say, off-screen conversations, that there are some great characters and personalities on there. But 
even even people like Daniel or people you know who who like Max who have got a real real spark about them as soon as the cameras are on they're having to dumb it down mm-hmm. because and and I don't blame don't don't get me wrong I think some of it is to do with this internet age we live in isn't it where they say something off the cuff slightly joking to you on sky but then there's some blogger somewhere who watches that takes it out of context and suddenly it becomes some internet phenomenon where you know he's slamming the team and this and, that. and it's just and i think that's the problem is that people who are so quick to do the clickbait headlines nowadays um it, it's taken away some of the character from the people within the paddock yeah i couldn't agree more and i think it's down to us to to sort of humanize them because you know i think that's what netflix did very well was that they they, they showed us how they are superhumans. They almost deified them in the cockpit. And, but once they got out, they showed us they were normal lads. And I loved the depth that you got on each of their lives because you met their parents or their girlfriends. And you got to see the enormous amount of sacrifice that everybody makes in order for that one guy to get, um, you know, onto the grid in Formula One. So, yeah, it's, it's great. And... Yeah, my, my brother and his wife, my brother's always loved F1, but his wife has never really been interested. And she watched the Netflix series and she watches religiously now. It's great. It's brilliant for all I, of I tell you, I mean, it's been an amazing time for sports documentaries, hasn't it? In, yes. In, you know, I watched the Michael Jordan one, the, the Last Dance. I saw exactly. there was one about the Australian cricket team, I think, uh, yes. called The Test. The it test. was ex- yeah. fantastic stuff. I mean, there have been some really, really good documentaries out there. But what does that tell us, Nats, is we're all watching it, even though I don't really know a lot about basketball, because of the human story. You know, people at home are craving the human story. Yeah. But it, uh, we're not able to tell the human story because these drivers are being restricted by the time they're allowed to talk. You know, the time they're allowed to talk to the media is restricted. Everything is a chronic to a schedule. Um, you know, if you talk to someone like Steve Ryder, who broadcast in the UK, you know, he was the main presenter during the era of Manselmania. Um, you know, he tells a great story about walking around the, the infield at Silverstone. Mansell had just taken pole, crowd going wild, Manselmania, cover page of all the, you know, Fleet Street papers. And there's Nigel sitting. He's got a caravan in the infield. He's got a white picket fence around it. And he's just sitting there in a deck chair chatting away to anyone who walks past and around it, whether it's fans or media or whoever. And, and that's gone. You know, now the drivers all go hide in their rooms and they hide in these motorhomes. I think, yeah, the sport has changed. And in this respect, I think not, not necessarily for the better. Well, hopefully it's something that can continue to evolve and improve in the pink and bows want to support you in whatever way we can during these uncertain and constantly evolving times so we're giving away more noise cancelling headphones to bring some added calm to your life to win the headphones just tag in the three friends you're most looking forward to reconnecting with once lockdown is fully lifted always include the hashtag bows and those headphones could be yours good luck and stay connected. Um, talking of evolution, um, talking of change, what have you made of the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, and you know what, I, I'm going to say at this point, because I know you and I have discussed it so much in recent weeks, um, and that's great, thank you, because I've, I've really enjoyed um, hearing your thoughts on it, but I want to kind of get them on record now. I don't know what else to call it other than the Black Lives Matter movement, because but, but Black Lives Matter is obviously an organization that a lot of people, so, well, some people feel uncomfortable with. It is also a statement that says Black Lives Matter, because of course they do. And I know that we've all come in for some criticism of this. You know, we were wearing badges to show our support and then people were like, well, hang on a minute. Do you even know what this organization stands for? So I kind of wanted to clarify that to begin with. That I, and I know you're the same, um, back and believe in, improvement, change, diversity um, on, on every level in Formula One. Um, what has been your initial kind of, your initial thoughts, if you like, and how have they evolved over the recent weeks? I think it's been a really educational couple of months 
for me, really. Um, if I'm perfectly honest, I didn't understand why the, you know, the, the movement gathered such a lot of steam on this occasion after obviously the tragedy with George Floyd in the States. But it's, it, it, you know, things like um, police brutality aren't new. They, they're not, it's not something that's, so I was trying to get my head around why suddenly on this occasion, it's gathered so much momentum. And then in that process, I, you know, I spent time speaking to, so a friend of mine uh, works in, in, in New York um, for the state and part of her, um, you know, her role is essentially, uh, she's a psychologist and she, she, you know, she works with patients, understanding whether they are ready to be put back into society, um, you know, after they've served a certain amount of time in prison. So she works in, she worked at Rikers Island, you know, some of the really tough prisons in there. And, it, you know, having several conversations with her made me find, really fully understand, because I haven't spent that much time in the States, so I don't, I don't really understand what, how big the problem was. But spent, having these conversations with her made me understand how much there is still an issue between how black um, people are treated by the police versus, uh, versus white people. And so, you know, you start with that and then you start to broaden the conversation to what Formula One have talked about, which is, you know, it, it's about diversity and inclusion, not just to do with race. It's to do with gender, it's to do with um, socioeconomic, which I think is very important and often overlooked because I think, you know, when people talk about diversity and inclusion, they immediately go to race or gender. But actually, you know, we, we need to, to really look at the socioeconomic side of it and see how do we make it more affordable for people to go and get the qualifications they need to work as an engineer or to get onto the ladder of karting to become a driver um, from all different walks of life. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's other aspects. You know, how do you make the introspective versus the, the, the introverts versus the extroverts, right? How, how does, if you look at, even in, um, uh, let's say, in any meeting in the paddock, it's the extroverts that are heard. You know, you and I are lucky, we are extroverts. But when we sit around a table of 10 or 12 people, there may be an introvert around there who actually has some you know, really, really important, valuable opinions, but is, is shy to share it. How do we make that person feel comfortable and included? Um, and it's something that, honestly, we don't all think about enough. And I think, so, you know, it's, as I said, it's been a really educational couple of months for me to understand really what, as a sport, Formula One needs to do. And I think that includes all of us as the community, as, as you know, members of this sport. I want to add sexual orientation to your list as well, because I'm yeah. really surprised the lack of openly gay men and women there are in Formula One. And, and then um, on top of that, I, I was talking, obviously, we were all talking to Lewis at the weekend after the Hungarian race. And he, he made the point, I just wonder how much would have been done in our sport if I wasn't here. And he wasn't trying to give himself a pat on the back he was just saying you know i am a six-time world champion and i and i'm being heard because of my status within the sport if i wasn't here would anything be done what do you think i think he's got a a very powerful voice and he's using it um i think there is a an element of truth in what he's saying you know certainly he's got the ability to to really make people sit up and think. Uh, if I'm perfectly honest, his tweets and his Instagram posts made me pay more attention to reading about the subject and learning about the subject. So, you know, I, I'll stick my hand up and say, absolutely, I was influenced by by what he was saying. Um, sorry, I think so. I think what what's what's interesting is the reaction of different people in the paddock, and this is also amongst other drivers. I think, you know. Some of the drivers have looked at it and gone, yeah, you know what? Fair play to Lewis. He's right. We should be thinking about it more. We should be, I should be educating myself more because this is an interesting point, uh, which is the school of thought that, as I said, I came from. But there are others who 
just because Lewis called them out on for not speaking about it, put their noses completely out of joint and have completely disconnected themselves from the conversation and are mm-hmm. sort of doing the bare minimum to appease um, appease their sport or appease their team to without actually engaging in the conversation. So do, you think, um, do you think he got it wrong then by coming out on the offensive? Perhaps he, perhaps if he'd encouraged uh, a wider dialogue, if you like, from from the off. Because yeah, it, I, know, I think, and, I think, and I get it. I get why he was pissed off and why he wanted to say what he did. But maybe, as you say, that did put people's backs up. Maybe that did. I think at the end of the day, dri- drivers and all. Drivers are like any other sportsman, right? They've all got an ego. All racing drivers have an ego. And different, it's just a different level of ego. Um, and certainly, you know, I think there's some drivers whose noses were put out of joint because of the way he came, as you said, on the front foot. And maybe if he'd done it in a more private way and just send them all an email, send them all a personal email saying, look, guys, <clears throat> this is the situation. These are my thoughts. I'm going to propose to F1 that this, 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 and this it would be good to do. To, mm. you know, and I'd really appreciate your um, support in, yeah. in this. And I, I, I do think he, certainly from the, from the minority, it is a minority of people that he seems to have rubbed up the wrong way in the way and the tone he's taken. I think that may have been a more effective way to do it. And do you think there's anything in the fact that they're obviously a hugely competitive bunch? I mean, I know we always talk about the Premier League and we say, you know, how clean and striking that image of them all taking the knee was. But the bottom line is they are a team. They do need to be unified and they are taking a stance as one. Whereas we've got quite a disparate group here. We've got competitors who probably don't want to say, well, you know, I'm fighting against him on the track. Why would I come together for this now i'm not saying that's right um because it would be so powerful but just I, I don't think it's it. that i don't think that's the issue i think um i think what we have to consider is f1 is is a bit more complex because you've got you've got 14 different nationalities of drivers mm. on the grid i think you've got football you know, teams as well though uh, I know, but what I'm saying is you've got 14 different nationalities amongst 20 people as a percentage. Right. That's yeah. quite a, that's yeah. quite a, a lot of international group. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there are, you know, different people have got different cultural reasons. I think Daniel Kefia, for example, from Russia explained his reasons for not taking yeah. the knee. But, but also, I think, and I mentioned this on a, a broadcast on Sky Sports F1, I think it's, yes, the knee... Taking the, the, the act of taking the knee by the drivers is a very powerful sign. And it's a very powerful symbol of support. But we need to be careful here because so much of the conversation following the races has been about which drivers did or didn't take the knee. Mm-hmm. We need to be careful that we don't lose sight of the bigger conversation. And you know, we, the symbolism shouldn't overtake the, the bigger picture conversation, which is actually... How do we fix this sport, which is currently in the paddock? I think I read a stat somewhere that was 97% white uh, at the moment and 88% male. You know, and that's even before going into the other, other um, categorizations that we've talked about before. So you know, really what we need to be talking about is how, how do we address those balances? Well, I suppose the first question is, does the sport want to redress that balance? And the answer is yes. We know they do. Um, Chase Carey has made a very powerful statement by contributing a million dollars himself, personally. So we know the, the appetite is there and the will is there. So now it's talk, I think the conversation really needs to be about how are we going to redress that balance? Yeah. Um, have you encountered racism within the sport or unconscious bias? What, what kind of has been your own personal experience? For me personally, and, and again, I need to reiterate that this is only my personal experience. It doesn't mean that it's the same about Lewis or Alex Albon or Narain or anyone else's experience. But in my personal, um, you know, 20 odd years of driving in, in the sport and working as a broadcaster, the answer is no from the core of the sport. You know, I never felt that I was treated differently by other drivers in wheel to wheel battle uh, or by 
teams or engineers or mechanics or anyone like that, you know, and it was fascinating. I saw the documentary about Willie T. Ribs on um, Netflix called Uppity. And I couldn't, I couldn't relate to it. You know, this, I, I was struggling to relate to it. this guy, the, the, you know, open, um, you know, racism that he felt where people were giving him duff engines and he was getting, you know, uh, real secondhand treatment purely because of the color of his skin. It was extraordinary for me to see. Uh, it was really eye-opening and, and quite sad to see, really. But, you know, for me personally, it's never been, I, I've never personally experienced in that level. So I, I call that the core of the sport, right? This is, I call it the core of the sport, who travel, the traveling circus that goes around to different, different parts of the world. I think where, certainly there is, there's a couple of occasions where, which does make you think. You know, I've, I've, for example, brought friends into the paddock who have mentioned to me, they said, you know, you look around, you realize not many non-white people here, are there? Um, and I think for me, because I grew up in a motorsport environment, I, I've, I've always felt like I belong in the paddock mm -hmm. and I've never questioned that. Whereas actually, if you, I think, first walk in there, it does make people check themselves. Hey, hang on, do we, what's going on here? Do we, do we belong here? Um, which is an interesting perspective, which, completely went over my head, to be honest. And it's something I've had to think about recently. Um, but it's, I think the peripheries of the sport, you know, for example, there's several races I go to where we do, you know, the security checks when you go in, certainly my bag gets checked more than other people. Um, you know, I remember there was, there was a race. Um, and, and I mentioned this to Eddie Jordan and I said to him, I said, you watch whichever car, we had a convoy of four cars going in. I said, whichever car I'm going in will be the one where the bags get surged. And it happened. And the next day I switched cars and it happened again in the other car. And then I switched cars again the third day. And he didn't believe me till I got to third day. He said, Mike, you know, I said, look, these aren't things that you guys have to think about, but I, I know it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it, it's a part of our life that you, um, you know, you, you unfortunately, I don't want to use the word get used to, but you almost come to expect in some parts. Um, but that's not an F1 problem, right? That's a, that's a societal problem in that country because mm. that's, those aren't people who work in Formula One. Those are people on the periphery of the sport. It's so interesting because you say uh, that's not something that we have to think about. It's also not even something that we necessarily notice being white. And yeah. I went, I had a, um, a black co-host for an NFL show that I used to present. And I suggested that we met at Shoreditch House for um, a production meeting. And he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's okay. And he walked in and he said, look, just out of interest, look around. And I was like, yeah, what? And he went, do you see another black person in this whole place? And I went, no, I don't. Now he said, now flip that. And you've come to meet me for a production meeting and you walk in and you don't see a single other white person you have to say you'd feel intimidated because, and you'd feel out of sorts and like you weren't welcome. And I thought, shit, I hadn't even thought of it like that. And this is why yeah. the whole process and all these conversations matter. And they really help because we're all being educated. We're all works in progress. And actually talking yeah. to Lewis on Sunday off camera, he said, I don't have all the answers. I'm learning on this as well. And it was refreshing to hear him say that, but I have to say how impressed we all were with just how incredibly well he performed in Hungary when he has got so much going on off track as well, because that would and could be a distraction for some people. And it clearly isn't for him. If anything, it almost motivates and energizes him, which is astonishing. Brilliant. Yeah, no, no question about it. You know, he's, he's able to, to clearly create that separation in his mind between when he needs to focus on, driving the car and uh you know and then focus on other issues outside of it it is very impressive and i think it's been really interesting talking to you know people within the sport within the paddock because you know the the immediate reaction and i've seen this even on you know like my facebook feeds and things like that from people i know from within the sport and there's like this immediate uh, reaction from people of saying, Oh, I'm not racist. I have, and, and, and often they'll come up with some story about how they have a black or brown friend and this and this and this happened. And therefore they're not. And it's like, 
no, you're not, you're not getting the big picture here. You're not understanding it. And, you know, I, I told a story of um, how I went to the station on, I think it was three occasions I've been to the station to pick my wife up when she got off the train. And, um, you know, I was, I was parked at the station in the sort of pickup area and somebody got in the back of the car because they assumed I was a taxi driver. Now, that person probably doesn't, you know, they probably don't think they're, a race, they're racist or they, they don't think they have racist thoughts or any uh, unconscious biases, but that showed that they did. Uh, there was a subconscious bias. And, and I think that's, the, that's been the interesting thing for me in this last couple of months is actually just learning about the concept, not, not necessarily the concept because I was aware of it, but just learning about how prevalent subconscious biases are in society. Mm. And just just trying to get people to think about what they say, how they say it. Um, and, you know, there's a fine line with friends as well, right? You know, I think there's, there's a lot of people who, <clears throat> who you know, li like you do with your close friends and your families, you do take certain liberties and you do make certain jokes and you do get, you know, you do relax a bit and, and, and things are taken by the recipient in the right way. But that's totally different versus somebody completely unknown to you making mm. comments or saying things. Um, and I think that, you know, there are moments where you look to your colleagues um, for support. You know, I think there's, you know, certainly I remember when I rejoined Sky at the beginning of last year, um, and there's a bit of controversy around whether Ted was going to be part of the team or not. And the number of, um, you know, tweets and messages I got, which were pretty, pretty abusive, you know, racially, uh, was extraordinary. And, um, you know, I was lucky that the management of Sky called me straight away and, you know, just said, look, want to make sure you're okay. Do we need any support? And this, and, and I was, I was very grateful for that. You know, they, they were there to support me and, you know, Mark Weber called me from Australia and he was sitting in his house in Noosa and he said, look, I've seen a couple of tweets. If you need me to fire a few missiles at, at them, just let me know. And, you know, I, I appreciate people like that coming out to support. And I think that to me shows that there is a very much a sense of community within the sport. And we have a powerful ability to, to rally together. Um, we just, we've just got to get, uh, a, a clear plan in place on how we channel that energy. Mark is a good bloke. Um, well, look, Karun, I knew that talking to you would be interesting and fun and easy, really. You're so easy to talk to. I really appreciate your time. I can't believe where the last hour has gone. It's flown by. Um, but thank you so much. And I will look forward very much to seeing you at Silverstone this weekend. Yeah, always a pleasure. See you next week. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that, Karine. And I know I speak to you a lot because we talk on the phone, obviously when we're at races. And throughout lockdown, he has been a good companion bouncing ideas off and uh, discussing the diversity issue within our sport. But just to get you on the podcast and to hear you talking so eloquently about... Um, obviously the issue of diversity but also the sport generally and where it's going and where it's come from is really interesting to me not just as your friend but as a fan of F1 so thank you Karun and yeah we've got plenty more on the way on In The Pink but don't forget you can still win those Bose noise cancelling headphones good old Bose giving those away isn't it lovely and uh, trust me they're brilliant they're absolutely amazing you kind of go off into your own little world of music or podcasts, whatever you want to listen to. So all you need to do is tag in the two friends that you've most enjoyed reconnecting with now that lockdown has been lifted and add the hashtag Bose. Do that on my Instagram page or the In The Pink podcast page and those headphones could well be yours. Okay, well, thank you for your company now. Keep messaging me keep me in the loop as to what you're up to and who else you want to hear from and i've loved having your company so far so long may it continue but for now it's bye-bye from in the pink
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.